Now, in a moment, uh, Nathan will come and uh, preach to us from a passage in Matthew 5. And if you'd turn to that now, uh, um, risk of sounding possessive, Mayan will come and, <laughs> uh, and read from that. So it's Matthew 5, if you want to be turning to it. Um, verses 31 to 37 and it's on page 969 in the church bible it has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply yet you let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. If you keep that open, Nathan now will come and speak. Thanks. other people to be honest uh, but very often we are not completely whether that's because we outright lie or we fudge the truth a little bit or probably most common of all we say we're going to do something and then we don't because we can't or we forgot or we've changed our mind or we never really intended to do it in the first place that is often how we interact with the truth slightly loosely that stands in contrast to the Lord, doesn't it? Who is truth, who cannot lie, who wouldn't want to deceive. He's the God who makes promises and keeps them. Now, if we want to be godly, that means we want to be like God. We want to be, live lives which reflect what he's like as we, we behave like the Lord Jesus in details of character. So that's what we're thinking about uh, a lot of the time over the next couple of months, we're thinking about different aspects of our character as Jesus brings it out in the Sermon on the Mount. And we're thinking about truthfulness this evening, honesty and sticking with what we say we're going to do. We're going to look at that in, in two areas, one big, one small. First, the, the big one, thinking about keeping our word in the area of huge vows made in the presence of God and of this congregation, that sort of vow. 
And then secondly, just keeping our word in the everyday details of our lives with appointments and little white lies and things like that. Both are important. We're going to start with the big one, though, and, and then get smaller. We're going to start with this call of Jesus to honour marriage vows. To honour marriage vows. There aren't many promises, are there, that are so monumental, life-shaping as marriage vows. So if we're going to be thinking about people who do what we say we're going to do, we should probably start with a big one like that. Now, these, uh, these verses uh, that, that, that we're looking at here are not simple ones. So let's just remember a little bit of the, the context. We're listening to the Sermon on the Mount, uh, where Jesus is teaching us what real righteousness really looks like. Not the shallow righteousness of the religious leaders at the time, the shallow righteousness that was all about appearances, all about doing the bare minimum. No, Jesus says real righteousness gets to our heart, it gets to what motivates us. And so over and over, Jesus compares what they teach, what the teacher of the Lord taught, how they interpreted the Bible with how it should be read. So six times he goes through, this is what you've heard, but this is what I'm telling you. So we've seen so far in verse 21, to Matthew 5, 21, you've heard that murder is sin. Absolutely not contradicting that. But I'm telling you, verse 22, don't even hate. Or in verse 27, you, you've heard that adultery is sin. Absolutely right. Verse 28, I'm saying don't even lust. So Jesus really says this is how you should be reading the Bible. And in our verses tonight, he changes the direction only a little bit from talking about adultery to talking about marriage vows. Let's read verse 31 and 32 uh, to refresh our memories. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her a victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now that's a lot to take in. So let's kind of work through step at a time. What had they heard? What were they being told by the other people? Verse 31. It's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Now that's referring to Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. It isn't a direct quote, but in that verse, Moses does mention giving a certificate when a divorce occurs, something that makes it official, it makes the, the split permanent. And in that bit in Deuteronomy, it talks, about when, uh, it talks about when a wife has become displeasing because something indecent has been discovered about them. It doesn't go into detail what that might be, and so different people would take a different line on it. So some rabbis would say, well, you can send her away for whatever you want. If she just does anything that you don't like, you can get rid of her. So it would literally say things like she burns the dinner. That's enough. You didn't like that. Send her away. Other rabbis would say, no, it's got to be particular situations that would allow for it. So this, yes, that, yes, that, yes, that, yes, but only in those times. Others would say, actually, with certain sins, it's not just that you can divorce her. You must. She did the thing. She's got to go. There's no space there for forgiveness or reconciliation or grace or anything. So there'd be lots of debate about that issue. What does it actually mean 
Uh, when is it appropriate? The Pharisees, however, cut through all of the debate and made it very, very simple. Their teaching, the summary of their teaching was, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate. That's it. So imagine somebody comes to you and says, I'm having real trouble in my marriage. I just want to know a little bit more. What, what does the Bible say about divorce? And you might think, okay, crikey. Well, uh, you might want to talk about God's ideal for marriage being lifelong, exclusive relationship of love and commitment, a picture of the gospel. You, you might want to talk about how divorce is always a tragedy. You might want to talk about it being a last resort after lots of hard work at reconciling. But if that imaginary person had gone up to a Pharisee and said, what does the Bible say? What, what should I do in this? They would say, make sure you fill in the paperwork right. That's the summary of my teaching. You want to get divorced? Go for it. Just to make sure you do the admin properly. It's very shallow, isn't it? There's nothing there about love or commitment or grace or forgiveness. It is just the letter of the law, not the spirit of the law. Now, uh, when we hear the word legalism, uh, if we think about it at all, we might think about religious people doing lots more than they need to in order to get right with God. I keep these laws, I add laws onto the laws, so I do lots of stuff to make God happy. Actually, sometimes legalism is about getting away with doing less. We reduce obedience down to something much easier, something much less than God intended. So I can say, that's the rule. Did I do the thing? Tick. I did the paperwork. Ah, phew, I'm fine. Nothing about our hearts, nothing about our character, nothing about relationships. So if that's how we see divorce, where we say, what does the Bible say? I'll just fill in the right forms. That isn't honouring marriage vows, is it? That's being the opposite of someone who keeps their word. That is saying, if ever it gets to the point where keeping your word becomes a bit tricky, just back out. Just back out whenever you'd like. Now, is that how God treats us? Is that how God wants us to treat others? Jesus says no. Jesus makes divorce a matter of real seriousness. Now, he, he, he does give grounds. Verse 32, he gives uh, uh, grounds there for something that would be a reason for divorce, and that's sexual immorality. Now, that uh, is a slight tweak from what the Old Testament teaches in that, in the Old Covenant, in national Israel, adultery was punishable by death. So, yes, marriages did tend to end if there had been sexual unfaithfulness because the wronged party was now a widow. So there is a slight tweak there that, that in the New Covenant, these legal penalties don't apply. But it is still a very serious thing. That is, if it is enough to break up the marriage if the person who was cheated on wants that. So Jesus is allowing for that. We know elsewhere in the Bible that desertion is another grounds for divorce, just one spouse just leaving the other, not wanting anything to do. The person who walks out is sinning. The person being left behind is not. They're free to divorce, free to remarry. But in verse 32, Jesus seems to be stricter than that. He says, I, I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her a victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. 
That does sound a bit like there's no scope for remarriage after divorce. I don't think that's right, uh, not least because the Old Testament did allow for remarriage and, and the Sermon on the Mount isn't Jesus correcting the Old Testament. He's correcting their interpretations of it. And, and what they were doing that he's trying to correct is, it, is they have this culture of no-fault divorce, this culture of just end it if you want to end it. You can just divorce and move on for no good reason. Fill in the form, start again. And Jesus is saying here, no, marriage isn't so easily broken as that. Marriage is built to last. And that only goes to show how terrible sexual immorality is, how terrible marital unfaithfulness is, or that sort of desertion is, or that sort of horrific abuse that amounts to desertion. Those sorts of things, that, that, those things are so terrible that they can tear apart something that's supposed to be unbreakable. But if that hasn't happened, if that tearing hasn't happened, there's a sense in which the marriage is still in one piece. It can look like it's over. You can have your little piece of paper that says it's over. But on that deeper level, it's still ongoing. It's still binding. And that's what's going on here when Jesus says, when you do that, when you end it, move on, go marry somebody else, that is like committing adultery. It says the husband is making his wife a victim of adultery. They might technically be divorced, but in reality, he's cheating on her. And it says that in situations like that, to marry into that mess is also to commit adultery because whatever the documentation says, it's still going on, it's still binding. Now, this isn't blaming uh, this imaginary woman at all. It's quite the opposite. It's saying he has made that happen to her. He, it's all the blame is on the divorcing husband, the one who has pushed her into that situation by divorcing her without cause. But it is a serious thing, isn't it, to say if it wasn't a legitimate divorce, then the paperwork means nothing because Jesus wants to take it to the heart. On the flip side, that means that when the divorce was a valid one, then remarriage is also valid. So if that is you, whether that's being married after a legitimate divorce or, or wanting to be, uh, I don't think you're the target here. The people Jesus is targeting are not the victims of, uh, of divorce. He's targeting people who are willing to trample on their spouses by breaking things up for no good reason. If that is us, then yes, this is aimed at us. There is a very strong challenge here to honour marriage vows, to work at marriages that are difficult or that have stopped even being difficult. They're just a matter of indifference. Just walk away from it. Marriage is a picture ultimately of the Lord Jesus' relationship with us, his church. And praise God, Jesus honours his marriage vows that the Lord Jesus doesn't leave us, that he doesn't break it off with us, he doesn't give up on us, he doesn't treat us abysmally. He loves us, he forgives us, he shows us grace, he perseveres with us. And so, of course, we should treat others the same way. If our marriages are going to be anything like the great marriage that, gospel, that, that, that it is a picture of, then, of course, we should seek to behave that way. 
And this is a massive challenge, I think, about how serious marriages, how solid marriages, how hard to break it is, not just how hard to break it ought to be. No wonder at weddings we often say marriage is a sign of unity and loyalty which all should uphold and honour. No one should enter into it lightly or selfishly, but reverently and responsibly in the sight of Almighty God. Jesus is saying this isn't a game. We really do need to honour marriage vows. If we are married, that means we honour our own vows to the person we're married to. And whether or not we are married, we honour other, people, other people's marriage vows too. We don't seek to break up what God has joined together. See, marriage is just such a significant thing. The Pharisees, in a sort of legalistic way, would just lower that down and say, well, just give her a certificate, don't worry about it. Jesus goes to the heart, to our character. We ought to be the kind of people who, when we're put in that sort of situation, this kind of love comes out rather than um, abuse of other people. The early church father, John Chrysostom, um, took this passage and linked it back to the Beatitudes. That's quite a good thing to often do throughout Sermon on the Mount. Jesus starts off with the Beatitudes and to sort of say, well, what would, what would it look like in this situation to live out those Beatitudes? And he, and he said this um, about 400 um, AD. He said, he that is meek and a peacemaker, and poor in spirit, and merciful, how shall he cast out his wife? He that is a peacemaker and is used to reconcile others, how could he be at variance with her who is his own? It's that idea of saying this is about our character. It's not just about, am I technically allowed to do that? Have I ticked the box? Have I not ticked the box? What about our character? If we're being shaped to be more like Jesus and his character, we're going to want to seek faithfulness over selfishness. We're going to want to seek reconciliation over cutting ties and running. We're going to want to seek keeping our word, even when it is very, very hard. Now, as I said before, there are times when divorce is allowable. If you've got more questions about that, I've not had the time to answer everything I'm aware. I don't want to open old wounds for people. If that's something you want to talk about, I'd be very happy to talk later. But in the meantime, let's, let's feel that challenge of Jesus to honour marriage vows. But this does apply wider than that as well. We used to do um, a catechism thing with our, our kids years ago, kind of questions and answers about big uh, Bible thing. So one of the questions was, I won't put the kids on the spot now, but one of the questions was, what is the seventh commandment? And the answer was, do not commit adultery. And the follow-up question was massive. How do you teach us? I remember doing this with Bram when he was about four. How do you, what does the seventh commandment teach us? And you say, well, <laughs> come on, child, explain adultery to me. <laughs> um, what does the seventh commandment teach us? And the child-sensitive answer to that is, to be faithful to others. And in a sense, it is as simple as that, isn't it? When we're talking about honouring marriage vows, that ought to be just about saying, because faithfulness is really good. Because God is faithful. It teaches us to be faithful to others, the kind of faithfulness that ought to characterise every relationship that we have. And that's where Jesus takes it next. He goes from the very specific situation about marriage to be a lot more universal than that, when he just says, honour your word. Honour your word. Yes, honour your marriage vows. Of course, honour your marriage vows. But also, 
Just honour your word in every part of life. From verse 33, Jesus talks about oaths or vows in general. So if there's anybody here going, none of this has applied to me so far, it did. But if you were thinking that, this bit will. Because we all make promises, don't we? We all say we're going to do things or not do things. And apparently that really matters to Jesus. So again, let's look at what the Pharisees said on the topic. So verse 33, again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oaths, but fulfill to the Lord the oaths you've made. That's not an Old Testament quote. It's a kind of summary of the teaching. Don't break the promises you've made to the Lord. What could Jesus possibly criticise about that? Well, he says this in verse 34, but I tell you, do not swear an oath at all. Keep those promises you made to the Lord, say one lot of people. He says, yeah, I'll go one better than that. Don't make those oaths at all. Now, what's that about? It can't be completely against oaths in general because he's just told us to keep our marriage vows. So it's not, not that, that's, can't be that. He's criticising again a surface level, shallow righteousness. Because when it came to telling the truth, the Pharisees had a little trick. They had a little loophole for getting out of it. If you swear to God that you're going to do something, I swear to God I'm going to do it, you had to do it. That's verse 32. Keep those oaths you make to the Lord. But if you never promise to, then you don't have to. Ha ha ha. And they would even have certain types of vows that you could break. So if you swore by heaven to do something, that wasn't binding. It was a bit like having your fingers crossed. Sort of, it, You say, oh, I swear by heaven I'll do this thing. And then you don't do it. And you go, oh, I didn't swear by God though, did I? I only swore by heaven. Sorry, <laughs> I don't actually have to do it. Or, or they would swear by their head, it talks about here. That, that, in other words, saying, cut my head off if I don't do this. You think, wow, that's pretty serious. No, it's not. Because I wasn't swearing to the Lord that I'd do it. It's just verbal contract, which, as they say, isn't worth the paper it's printed on. It's sneaky, isn't it? Isn't that really sneaky? But we can do that kind of thing as well. If, if you're the sort of person who tells their children that we never promised we were going to do that. I just said we would. Oh, because that's different, isn't it? Or, or with somebody who says, well, you know, we, we never signed on the dotted line. We never did pinky promise, swear on my mum's life, cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. I never said that. So I don't actually have to do it. I just said I would. Jesus cuts through all of those things and says... Do not swear an oath at all. Don't swear an oath at all because whether you're doing it in the name of the Lord or not, the Lord is still involved. So in verse 34, if you're swearing by heaven, don't act like that's got nothing to do with God. That's, that's God's throne. If you swear by the, oh, I swear by the earth, well, that's God's footstool. Or if you swear by your head, that's under God's control. So verse 36 says, you can't even make one hair white or black. You can use just for men or... L'Oreal, whatever it is, but apparently God is in charge of your head and my head, not us, not our hairdressers. So instead of making vows like that and tying ourselves in knots over it, Jesus has a radical alternative in verse 37. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. 
Now, that's a groundbreaking idea, isn't it? Just tell the truth. Just honour your word. If you say you're going to do something, do it. And if you say you're not going to do something, don't do it. Honour your word. Let your yes mean yes. Let your no mean no. So again, Jesus, I don't think he's outlawing taking vows. God makes oaths in the Bible. He's just taking it deeper than a rule can go. He's calling us, be the kind of people who don't need to make a vow. Because our word is our bond. People who don't need to swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, before we'll actually tell the truth. We just mean what we say. We say what we mean. We don't exaggerate to mislead people. We don't make out the traffic was worse than it was, when really we just set off late. We don't make commitments that we weren't planning to keep. We aren't the kind of people who never let the truth get in the way of a good story. We just say no. Or yes. And that's enough. Because we are people who honour our word. And there are times when we have said yes. And it turns out that we're not God. We're not able to do everything that we said we would do. Okay, well, that's not a thing to pretend again. Let's deal with it honestly and seriously because we are people of our word. So if it turns out we can't keep our word, we will apologize. We will deal with that properly and not just um, pretend it didn't happen. Oaths, vows, contracts, those only exist because people are liars. In the, the film, The Invention of Lying, it, it imagines a world without lies. The adverts are quite funny because they can't advertise like we advertise. They just have to go, Pepsi, for when they don't have Coke. You know, they tell the truth. Um, and they don't have pin numbers or anything like that because you could just go up to the bank and go, that one's my bank account, I'll have that much money. Okay, because nobody lies. So you don't need these things unless nobody lies. Uh, but in a fallen world of sinful people, we do sometimes need those things to protect ourselves from one another, from ourselves. But that is proof of what's wrong with us, isn't it? Every time we, we need those kinds of things, that is a sign that our hearts are naturally sinful. We can't be trusted. Whether that is about our marriage vows or just putting a date in the diary or the most common Christian lie I'll pray for that. <laughs> we struggle to stay true. We really do need a saviour, don't we? We really need the Lord Jesus. We really need his forgiveness. We're going to be thinking uh, communion in just a short time of what it cost him to bring us that forgiveness for how untrue we are. We need his Holy Spirit to transform our hearts, not just so that we fill in the right forms, but so that we become more like him. The one whose word is always true. The one who is utterly dependable. The one who does make promises, not because it will help him to keep them, but because it will help us to trust him. We want to be people who honour our words. Now, it might be in light of this that there are things that we need to change things that we've said we need to try and unsay, uh, relationships we need to try and fix or repair or, or deal with, people we need to apologise for, untruths we need to go and 
correct. Because we want to be people, don't we, who honour the big words in our lives, honour those marriage vows, but also those little ones as well. Why don't we just take a moment uh, to reflect on that, and then let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we admit that we struggle with truth, that there are times when it is so much easier to just do what we want to do in the moment rather than what we said we'd do. And there are times when saying what really is the case would be less convenient. And in those times, we want to be people who honour our word. We want to be people who are like you, utterly dependable and trustworthy. We are sorry for that impulse within us to lie or to back out on things. We pray, please would you forgive us because of the Lord Jesus and please would you transform us so more and more we don't just have a shallow kind of righteousness but a deep heart character of truthfulness. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.